Let me encourage you, please, to have your Bible open in Matthew chapter 8. If there were ever just four verses which pack a real punch, uh, verses 19 to 22 of Matthew chapter 8 don't have many rivals. You might imagine that such enthusiasm as seems to be found in these two men who we find coming to Jesus in these opening verses. First of all, um, a scribe in verse 19, uh, and then someone who's simply described as another of his disciples in verse 21. Um, You might suppose that two men like that coming to Jesus, well, surely the reaction of Christ is going to be that they will be met with a big smile, a warm embrace, and a very cheery welcome aboard. Instead, we find ourselves pulled up very sharply indeed by the replies that these two men receive from Jesus. Just before we get to that, this is the first time that we find Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. And he'll do that quite often as we continue through Matthew's Gospel. Uh, And this is worthy of a brief mention, who who this man is who is speaking to these men in this way. Now sometimes, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll come through this term, son of man, but it's simply referring to people like you and me. It simply is talking about men and women. Uh, One example will be a verse that some of you will have heard, which is verse 4 of Psalm 8, which says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? It's just talking about people like you and me in that particular context. And of course, it's, it's a reference there to the sinfulness and the frailty of our humanity when set against the holiness of God. But Jesus, in referring to himself as the Son of Man, is doing so in a different way. Now certainly it emphasises his human nature, that's for sure, Uh, but much more than that it's a term which is rooted back in Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. And it's something that we read there in Daniel 7 that Jesus himself echoes towards the end of Matthew's Gospel at chapter 26. So let me just read, first of all, from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. This is what we read there. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you'll know that this is speaking of that everlasting kingdom which Christ came to establish. And then in Matthew 26, Jesus is under arrest at that point, just before his crucifixion, and the high priest says to Jesus in verse 63, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. To which Jesus replies, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There's that very 
clear uh, parallel between what Jesus says there in Matthew and to what we read back in Daniel chapter 7. And by using this term, son of man, early in his earthly ministry, Jesus is clearly identifying himself as that one spoken of and prophesied. He is this Christ, the Son of God, as the high priest would question him. And Jesus say, it is as you say. Uh, but Jesus does so without making an immediate and obvious claim for himself to being the Messiah. Christ's revelation of himself was something of a gradual thing. You might remember there was a number of times when Jesus used this phrase, my hour is not yet come. When his mother at the wedding in Cana uh, pushes him forward uh, to produce the wine, Jesus himself is wanting to just hold back. And sometimes after a healing, he would tell people, don't let people know who's done this. Because there was to be a gradual revealing of himself in the world. And so this phrase, the Son of Man, is a way that Jesus chooses to refer to himself throughout his earthly ministry. And we'll become well acquainted with it as we make our way through Matthew's Gospel. And so it's this one who is the Son of Man that these two men come to to declare some form of allegiance to him. First of all, the scribe, and then someone else who is acknowledged to be one of his disciples. And I want us to see just two things this morning. Uh, typically, I might have three. Just two for this morning. And we're going to consider these two things by asking the same question or very, two very similar questions. A follower of Jesus Christ, what does that really mean? Answer, dedicated discipleship. Dedicated discipleship. A scribe comes up to Jesus. Probably quite an unexpected show of allegiance for a scribe. We'll, we'll see that the scribes and the Pharisees frequently being at odds with Jesus. Here's a scribe who says he wants to come and follow Jesus. Now, we can't know what this man's mind or motive may have been. I'm sure Jesus would have known only too well. Jesus is the one who knows our hearts and knows our frame. We, we don't. Um, what was it that this scribe saw? Uh, was it the novelty of something new and different? Maybe. Was it the attraction of being part of something which drew such a large gathering? Maybe. Uh, did this man have a, a leaning towards being a bit controversial and provocative? Maybe. Maybe. Did he have a genuine interest and sense of agreement with all the things that he's seeing and hearing from Jesus? Maybe that's true. But we can't be certain of for ourselves. Is it possible that things other than a genuine saving faith 
can produce in people a, a desire to, well, the, the equivalent today would be a desire to come to church and meet with Christians. Is it possible that something other than genuine saving faith could produce that kind of desire in someone? Can there be some sort of attraction about gatherings such as ours this morning which draws people in but which never produces true saving faith? Well, the answer has to be yes. It is possible. So the question has to be, how is it for you this morning? We can't be certain why this scribe has come to Christ and made this statement of allegiance to him, because we're not told. But how is it for you this morning? What is it that brings you here? Are you one who truly is seeking after Christ, truly desiring in your heart to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that what brings you here, week after week? Now for this scribe, as far as we can tell from our Bibles, his position is left completely open-ended and unresolved. We don't know how he responded. We don't know what he did. We don't know what his reaction was when Jesus said to him what Jesus said. We're not told how this encounter with Jesus concludes for this scribe. But you can and you must conclude how this is going to be for you. And listening to what Jesus says in these verses is really very important. The second man who comes, about whom we're told nothing else, save that he's described as being one of these disciples, he wants, first of all, to be allowed to go home and complete the burial of his father, and then he'll follow once that's done. I think one of the points, surely, that Jesus wants to make here, that being a follower of Christ is not like being a follower of a football team. It's not about being a fan or a supporter. It's something that has to be far, far deeper than that. Now, for sure, nowadays, if you're the follower of a football team, that can require considerable financial outlay, and it can be of some considerable inconvenience in putting yourself out if you want to attend every game. But even then, there's much more to following Christ than things like that. To be a follower of Christ is about a whole-of-life submission and devotion which makes you willing to walk yourself wherever Christ walked. And the place where Christ frequently walked was the place of hardship and opposition and suffering. Look at Jesus' reply to the scribe in verse 20. Even foxes and birds have a place to call home. The king of glory didn't even have that. Following me might require that you lose even that to be worse off than the animals because you're following me. The life of Jesus would begin in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn and it would end in a borrowed tomb. Think about that. 
he says, follow me. That's what Jesus is impressing upon his hearers right at the start of his earthly ministry. Following Christ could cost you everything. Actually, for millions of believers down the centuries, it has. Is it the case that for many Christians today, such dire consequences of being a Christian are simply dismissed as being reserved for extreme, exceptional circumstances? I know that could happen, but actually, I'm counting on it never having to be true for me. Is that the heart and mind of a true follower of Christ, given what Jesus says to this man? And then there's this man who wants to bury his father, which seems to you, I'm sure, not an unreasonable request, surely? Would, be, would Jesus be so, well, what kind of words might we use about him? Callous? Uncaring? Cold? To deny this man the opportunity even to bury his father? Would we think of Christ in those terms when Jesus puts this kind of situation before us? Jesus is pointing out in verse 22 that being his follower means that you must give your all and hold back nothing. Nothing else must ever be allowed to be a greater priority than following him. To the degree that if ever you did have to make such a choice, you would always choose Christ. Always. Now, in God's grace, decisions as tough as that aren't actually required of us every day. Not for most of us, anyway. But the principle of it needs to be resonating within us all the time. Because for you, for me, tomorrow could be the very day when such a decision is required. In a few months' time, in a few years' time, it may be that almost every day of the week, decisions like that have to be taken as to just what place Christ has in our lives, regardless of the consequences that might bring. That's what Jesus is placing before us here as he answers these two men. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Easy to sing if you don't actually think you'll ever be in the place where that is a full-blown reality. Jesus is saying, no, you think on these things, because it very well could be. That's what Jesus is impressing upon these two men, and he does it so that everyone else can hear it too. This is early in his public ministry, 
And such is his truthfulness, such is his honesty, such is his integrity, he will not allow people to be misled as to what it means to be his disciple. He's not going to suck people in under false pretenses and then shock them further down the line. No, he says to people right up front, if you're going to follow me, you need to be ready for what, may, what that might require of you. If you will be a follower of Christ, there's very little room to be a follower of anything else. Not to a big, de- not to a big degree. If you will be a follower of Christ, you must not even flinch at the thought of what it may cost you. It was this understanding, surely, which helped to fuel the the missionary endeavours of men like the Apostle Paul and those who travelled with him as they took the gospel out to most of the Mediterranean world. It was this kind of thinking which fueled the pioneering mission endeavours that we so frequently speak of in the 18th and 19th and the early 20th centuries. As thousands left the shores of Europe, thousands departed from ships in Liverpool to take the gospel into the far-flung places of of the world. There would be times when news arrived of missionaries who'd lost their lives. Sometimes within months of arriving at their destination, some even on the journey. Some losing wives and children within months, within a few years. And rather than putting everyone else off, mission societies would be flooded with more applications than they could cope with. We will go and take their place. Nothing less than wholehearted dedicated discipleship Jesus is putting before us here to be a follower of Christ and you can look back through the pages of church history you can actually look around the world today you will find people living their Christian lives just like this it's not so far-fetched as you might think as surely as we think on these verses This needs to be something that we encourage one another in. This probably needs to be something which each of us are an example of, far more than we are at the moment. That certainly was the thing that struck me. This is something which we need to see may well become much more of a reality for Christians if we remain committed to declaring the truth of God's word, living our lives according to the truth of God's word in a society which is becoming more and more godless and sinful. And at the same time, having acknowledged all of that, we have this most helpful reminder that even being a disciple like that, it still may be that we find we are men and women of a faltering faith. We don't become spiritual superheroes. All of these people we read of in the Bible, they were flesh and blood just like we are. The Apostle Paul, he knew what it was to be filled with tears in his ministry. He knew what it was to be discouraged. He knew what it was to feel as if he'd been completely abandoned by everyone else in the church and just was striving on his own. He knew all of those things and more beside. 
He knew those times when he felt like he had no faith at all. So we're to be dedicated disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this next story that unfolds, something else then comes onto the page. A follower of Jesus Christ, how will it sometimes look? Answer. It will sometimes look like faltering faith. Sometimes it will. And there's this, there's this wonderful reality in the Bible as it lays before us that which is required of us, but at the same time acknowledges all of the things that will tr trouble us and worry us, the things that we'll struggle with as the Lord's people. It doesn't try to whitewash over those things. And so we have this well-known story of Christ asleep in the boat. He's got these disciples who are hearing these challenges that Jesus makes to these two men, but they're still going with him across the lake. And they're still prepared to make sacrifices and to be with him. And yet, as this storm falls, even with Christ in the boat with them, they are terrified for their lives. And this, this story is so rich and helpful. Uh, uh, my great friend, who I've never met, but God willing, one day I will in glory, J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts gives a really helpful insight into this event. This, listen to what he says. What a vivid picture we have here of the hearts of thousands of believers. How many have faith and love enough to forsake all for Christ's sake and follow him wherever he goes and yet are full of fears in the hour of trial. How many have grace enough to turn to Jesus in every trouble, crying, Lord, save us. And yet, not grace enough to lie still and believe in the darkest hour that all is well. We know these struggles. Christ sees these struggles in his own disciples. He understands that you and I will have them. And one of the wonderful things he provides for us in his word is these encouragements to help us through these trials. Here are a group of men who on the face of it are not in the category of the scribe. And they're not in the category of our unnamed friend with a father to bury. They're, they're out on the middle of the lake, going with Christ. And yet, when confronted with this violent storm, which is so severe, verse 25, that they are convinced it's going to claim their lives, presumably they're convinced it's even going to claim Christ's life because he's in the boat with them, they are filled with dread and terror. Now, it's true, these would not have been large boats, and as we reminded ourselves with the children, some of the disciples were seasoned sailors on these waters. They knew this lake well. One of the reasons why they're so frightened, because they know the lake so well. They know how dangerous it can be. And Jesus, on the other hand, completely at rest, fast asleep. It's a remarkable contrast, isn't it?
completely at rest, fast asleep. And verse 25, the disciples wake him. Lord, save us. We are perishing. We are about to die. And once awake, with the storm still raging, Jesus asks them, why are you afraid? Now, it's interesting that he doesn't ask them that question after the storm has been calmed. He doesn't calm the storm, then turn to them and say, why were you afraid? He asks them the question in the middle of the storm. Why are you frightened? Can you see, there is a sense, from a human perspective, there is something wrong with you if you're not afraid in that kind of situation. You can kind of imagine someone thinking, why are we afraid? What kind of a dumb question is that? Because from a human perspective, it is a dumb question to ask. Why are we afraid? And isn't that actually how so many of us find ourselves reacting in testing circumstances. Of course, of course I'm frightened. How else do you expect me to be? And that's the issue right there. Not that a Christian never feels any fear. Not that a Christian never has any worry. Not that a Christian ever has, never has any anxiety. But there is never a need to be in such a state of distress. Crying out to Christ as if apparently he's impotent, powerless to do anything, and has abandoned us to our fate as if he's not with us at all. Because that's the state the disciples have got themselves into. The fact that Christ is in the boat irrelevant we're going to die that's the problem that's the stage they've reached that no Christian should ever reach even though the storm may rage about us in whatever form that storm may take and let's face it this life throws up all kinds of pretty fierce storms that we have to cope with and navigate The storm is as much under his control while it is raging as it is as he calms it. Even as the storm is raging, Christ is with you and he is over the storm. That's what the disciples have missed. Jesus is saying to them, regardless of this storm, is it not enough that I am here with you? It should be enough that I am here with you. Because it is enough that I am here with you. It is enough that I'm with you. And Jesus, he actually rebukes them because of their fear. And then he rebukes the storm with just a word. 
He loves them dearly. He's going to preserve them. But nevertheless, he rebukes them for their lack of faith and for allowing themselves to to get themselves into a position of such distress and believing that even with Christ in the boat, it is all up for them. It's a really important lesson that we learn from the Saviour and his disciples for our discipleship with him. When the storms are raging, that is not a sign that you've been abandoned or forsaken. That is not a sign that somehow, for this brief moment, everything is out of God's control. He's with you. And he's as much, of it, he's as much in control in the midst of the storm. And Jesus rebukes the storm. Why does he rebuke the storm? Well, such violence of nature is the result of the fallenness of this sinful world. It goes against how the world was first created. And so Christ rebukes the wind and he rebukes the waves in exactly the same way that he overpowers sickness and casts out demons. He asserts his authority over them. Jesus reinforces just how needless their fears have been by bringing an immediate calm. The wind ceases to blow and waves just don't go flat. But they did that day at his word. And just as quickly as that man's leprosy was banished from his body back in verse 3, just as quickly as the centurion's servant became well back in verse 13 and Peter's mother-in-law recovered from her fever in verse 15, Jesus simply speaks and the storm is gone. No evidence of it is left. Jesus would have us learn what the disciples learned that day. Actually, the storm is God's instrument for strengthening faith. The storm is God's instrument for strengthening faith. Uh, William Cooper put it in his hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. He's got it. Now for ourselves today, as we listen to the disciples talk amongst themselves, who is this man? But as we listen to them thinking about this with our completed Bibles in front of us, providing us with all of redemption's story from beginning to end, as we hear 
the disciples asking this question, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Surely rising up within you, you're, you're screaming out to them, it is Christ, it is the Lord of glory. He was with you in the boat. The one who spoke and made all of these things. And we're in this glorious position of having these truths available to us. Christ is with us. As we remembered on Wednesday, this Jesus, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, the promised Messiah, the promised Redeemer. So why would we fear? Jesus rebukes the disciples, even with their little understanding. They've already seen and heard enough to know. They've seen a leprous man made well. How much more would our Saviour perhaps need to bring that same rebuke to our own hearts? when we are caught up in needless depths of fear and worry and anxiety. And at the same time, assuring us of his very great love and compassion towards us. Jesus promised that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But that requires us to truly lean on him, trust him and trust ourselves to him, to know that this is God who is with me and in me, working all things for my good and for his glory. Why am I so fearful? Why am I so anxious when such a one as he is mine and I am his? Maybe you're not a believer this morning. Maybe you are without faith. Well, I want to encourage you to consider very carefully this question asked by the disciples there in verse 27. Who can this man be? Who can this man be? Matthew clearly so much wants you to understand who this man is. That's why he wrote this whole account of Christ's life. Who is this who speaks with such authority? Who is this who heals the sick? Who is this who can even instruct the winds and the waves and they have no option but to obey his voice? There was absolutely no doubt about it As the moment Christ spoke, the wind had to do his bidding. The waves have to do his bidding, for he is God. And he's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the saviour of sinners. And if you've never put your trust in him, you are a sinner in need of saving. As much as those men thought they needed saving that day, you need saving far more. As much as those men thought they were perishing, without Christ, you really are. 
and he's your only answer. Right now, you're perishing in your sins and you really do need to cry out to him that you might be saved. And you know, just as he heard the cry of his disciples, he'll hear your cry too. And just as he was able to save his disciples, he will save you and oh, how he'll save you. Assuredly, as he answered his disciples in the boat that day, he will answer you. Whether you've never yet trusted in Christ, whether you've been walking with him for 50, 60, 70 years, what what is it that we all need? We need God's grace. We need a humble heart. We need to repent of our sin and put our faith firmly in Christ. Lay hold of him in confession of your sins that he might display his mercy, his grace, his kindness as he does to all who call out to him and seek him while he may be found. If you've never done that before, why don't you do it today? Why don't you do it even now? For God is waiting and ready to hear the cry of sinners. Lord, have mercy on me and save me. And he will. Who is this man? He is the man who is God. And you cannot afford to ignore him. And for those of you who do know him and love him, you have no need to be afraid. Just follow.